Good morning. Our Old Testament reading has come from Genesis chapter 29, and our New Testament will come from Hebrews 12. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 29 in your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, the Scripture will appear on the screens behind me, or they are in your bulletin, and you can follow along. Genesis chapter 29, verses 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold... Three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I came across a National Geographic article entitled, These Are History's most notorious liars. Number one, Richard Nixon. Those of you old enough to remember Watergate know about President Nixon and his demise. In the article, Claudia Kalb writes, Watergate set the bar for presidential lies when Nixon insisted he played no role On the morning of June 17, 1972, five men were arrested after breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate building in Washington, D.C. 
the media, led by Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, doggedly pursued the story, exposing wiretaps, secret documents, and hush money. President Richard Nixon denied involvement in the scandal, declaring, do you remember, I am not a crook, in a nationally televised press conference. But the White House cover-up failed. Faced with almost certain impeachment, Nixon resigned from the second term in office on August 9th, 1974. There is no denying that Jacob's DNA is that of a crook. His name means deceiver. We have seen in our study here of blessings bearer number three. Remember that the long arc of Genesis is about the promise of the offspring of the woman, going to bring a Messiah, a Savior, and God begins with Abraham. And the baton is passed to Isaac, and now it's in Jacob's hand. And we're studying his journey at length. He swindled Esau, his brother, out of his birthright, chapter 25, and then usurped the blessing from him through an elaborate masquerade lying binge with Dad in chapter 28, no, excuse me, chapter 27, and the costs were high. He became fugitive from his brother's wrath, fled the home, headed for the land of his ancestors in chapter 28. And we invested the last two sermons in the great ladder between earth and heaven account and marveled at the mercy of God to this flawed man, this liar and deceiver, and promises that were confirmed to him that were made first to Abraham and then to Isaac, and then a special promise just for him. We recall Genesis 28, 15, Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In other words, count on this promise. Now we're coming to a section that I call Blessings Bearer in Exile. He reaches Haran. And there's so much going on in Genesis 29 to 31. We have to limit ourselves, as I explained in the E-News article, as we're dashing to the finish in Genesis, we're treating this in survey fashion, hitting the high points. And here's my main idea that I think I have rightly pieced together from this portion of Jacob's story. God's blessing plan to keep promises prevails despite his people's ugliest flaws. Our worst stuff does not hinder God from keeping his promises and carrying through his blessing plan. And is not lying one of the worst of our flaws? I mean, can you think of a time when you've been duped and it really hurt 
you were flat out deceived and you learned about it. A promise wasn't kept. A word spoken, count on this. And it didn't come through. Some of the worst wounds in life are about such betrayals. You read this through, and I, again, let me, let me reinforce, if we're going to make it over the next few, now next week is only two chapters, no, two weeks from now, because Matt's here next week, it's two chapters, but then the week after that is four. You need to read through the entirety on your own. Because so, I just don't have time to read it here as we uh, adopt this unorthodox approach. But you, you read 29 and 30 and 31, lying is everywhere. Deception abounds. <laughs> Here's the irony of ironies. Jacob meets his match. Uncle Laban's got him beat. This is one notorious scoundrel. Starts to finish. And he endures him for 20 years. Things go from bad to worse in his household. It's not a pretty picture. Requires not just one, but two wives and two concubine slave wives. All of that's here. And we can moralize all we want about it. But that's not the main thing I want you to see. Not, I don't want you going, I'm not going to be like that. Well, I hope so. But what I want you to see is the grace and the mercy of God over it all. In spite of it. He's not outdone. He's never thwarted by our sinful patterns. Of he always works to transform us into that new creation. And there are three ways I see it in the text. God prevailing over our flaws to preserve his blessing plans and promises. A powerful hand of providence. A merciful heart of provision. A watchful eye of protection. There's hand and heart and eye here. In the work of God, starting with, first, God's powerful hand of providence. And let me remind you of the catechism's helpful definition of providence. Did I give you a slide for that, Maham, or not? Yes. God's works of providence are the holy, wise, and powerful acts by which he preserves and governs all his creatures, and all their actions. Your eyes popped open this morning, and you drew another breath and crawled out of bed and got here and are hearing right now because of providence. Colossians 1, 17, In him all things hold together. That fragile body of yours under attack, held together, breathes, continues to live, continues to fight because of the keeping, upholding power 
of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.3. He upholds the universe. It spins and does not go careening off into other realms because of providence. And there is no such thing as luck, which is why I don't gamble. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy of the Lord. Now, consider the evidence of providence in the text. I want you to think back, if you can, to Genesis 24, because there are a lot of similarities in what happens here. Remember, Genesis 24 was the account of Abraham's servant coming to this very same place to find a wife for Isaac. And as with Genesis 24, so Jacob secures a wife at perhaps this very well. And a well is almost always a symbol of God's blessing in the Old Testament. And the hand of providence is all over this. The shepherds show up at just the right time. Uh, they just so happen to live in Haran. Verse 4, they just so happen to know Uncle Laban. Verse 5, and Rachel just so happens to be coming to water the sheep at that moment. Verse 15, just as Rebecca did back in chapter 24, the similarities are striking, but the differences are striking as well. When the servant arrived on site with a mission to find a wife, do you remember the first thing he did? He prayed for good success. Asoji. No evidence here of him asking for God's help. Furthermore, upon securing Isaac's bride, the servant gives praise and thanksgiving to God for his help. There's none of that here with Jacob. He is not yet the God-centered man. He is destined to become. Do you feel like you still have a long way to go? Ever feel that way? Here is Jacob, a long way to go. Identify. And now enter God's powerful hand of providence whose name is Laban. It's so tempting to read a double meaning behind Laban's reading of his nephew in chapter 29, verse 14. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. We're cut from the same cloth, friend. Happy to see you, deceivers both. This is so hard. You just want to go into detail about the tables turned in the marriage contract. Customary bride price is being worked out. Seven years of labor goes by like a flash. This guy is so enamored with Rachel. Time comes, though, and he has to get Laban to deliver. It's like, Where's my wife? 
And then in a masterful ruse at night after a wild party and some, uh, some covering, he brings her Leah, the unlovely, the homely, if you will, the one without bright eyes, instead of Rachel. And then negotiates another seven years out of Jacob, more servitude for the one he really wanted, Laban is God's providential tool of discipline in Jacob's life. And not just for those 14. Because after that, there's an additional six years of trickery having to do with flocks and the speckled thing and the rods and wow. But 20 years And is it not true that more than not, it's the people in our lives that are the most irritating and difficult, that are God's providential tool of sanctification and change? They are his introduced means to bring us to the end of ourselves and the dependence upon God to make us more the kind of people he wants us to be. That's why I had Hebrews 12. And I, and I want to say, is there a layman in your life? Somebody at work? A neighbor you cannot abide? A family member? Some of the most effective tools that God uses are the people we like the least. It's for discipline that you have to endure, Hebrews 12 says. God is treating you as sons. You know, this message was not planned for Father's Day. This was supposed to be last week. And in Providence, I was in North Carolina for Nancy's mom's funeral. And thank you for praying for that and for Jan's mom's funeral on the same day here in Orlando. God would have us mindful that he is our ultimate father. And part of his loving fatherhood is disciplining us. Martin Luther wrote this about God's providence. God's wonderful works which happen daily are lightly esteemed, not because they are of no import, but because they happen so constantly and without interruption. Man is used to the miracle that God rules the world and upholds all creation. And because things daily run their appointed course, it seems insignificant, and no man thinks it worth his while to meditate upon it and to regard it as God's wonderful work. And yet, yet, mind-blowing thought, it is a greater wonder than that Christ fed 5,000 men with five loaves and made wine from water. There's perspective on God's powerful hand of providence and its role in our lives and God's overruling of so much in our lives toward his blessing plan being fulfilled. Second, There is his merciful heart of provision. Verse 
the stretch from Genesis 29, 31 to chapter 30, verse 43 is breathtaking. Jacob, think about this. Jacob goes from being a single man with just a staff in his hand when he arrived in Haran, Genesis 32, 10, to marriage, 11 children, and this description of himself in chapter 30, verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. God keeping his promises to blessings bigger particularly in the matter of descendants. If you haven't had a chance to read this, please do. The scripture is scrupulous in its detail with Leah and her four, and then right on down the line, Rachel and Bildad and the other slave wife. But what just bottles the imagination is how God does it. He just... He blesses this way despite these women's ugly, idolatrous flaws and Jacob's too. For example, Leah births Simeon, and what does she say in 29.34? Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me. Third baby, now I've got his heart. Now I'm going to get the love from this man I want and desire so much. She names him accordingly. What about Rachel in Genesis 30, verse 1? When she saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. The green-eyed jealousy envied kind of monster. Imagine her grabbing her husband by the robe. Give me children lest I die. Don't you love Jacob's answer? Gentlemen, I do not prescribe this way of treating your wives when they come to you with a great painful longing in their hearts. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Good theology, lousy EQ. By the way, when Rebecca cried out to Isaac, her longing for a child and the opening of her womb, what did she do? He prayed. Once again, I submit to you, there's no foundational prevailing dependence upon God yet being worked in Jacob's life. I mean, this, this gets even more interesting uh, in terms of the dynamics going on with this bizarre mandrake deal. 
in chapter 30, verses 14 and following, mandrakes were thought to have fertility properties. Me and Rachel are going through this negotiation. Purchasing bedtime with Jacob. This just baffles the imagination. It's a lot of brokenness here. One of the things I love about the scripture is nothing is whitewashed. Not a campaign to talk you into anything. It just puts out the reality of people and their brokenness. And despite it all, God graciously blesses Leah. The hatred, did you see that word in 2931? And eventually opens Rachel's womb after she gives away the man's rapes and prays. And in the end result, we have 11 children who, folks, are the heads of the tribes of Israel. Most unlikely parents for the greatest of God's purposes. Feast your eyes on the mercy to the unwanted here, to the unlovely, to the marginalized, to the unfavored Leah. How much hurt must that woman have absorbed in this household. And yet to her and her child Levi will come Moses and Aaron. The Levites will be chosen to attend to the temple. And downstream from Judah, that fourth child will come David and the royal line of kings culminating in the king of kings and lord of lords to whom ultimately the promise of promises will be kept and met. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And God does it to the unwanted, the unlovely, the rejected, the marginalized Leah <laughs> who went on a campaign for fulfillment and a husband, and finding it in the only place that could meet her heart need when she birthed her fourth son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Your husband is never the satisfaction that can meet the deep ache in the bottom of the well that is your soul. Your wife is never that medicine, never that ultimate relief. The depth of your heart as a man can only have fulfilled in Jesus. Your father can't be that. Your son can't be that. Your mother can't be that. Your daughter can't be that. Your grandchildren cannot be that. This time, I will praise the Lord. Your church can't be that. Your job can't be that. Nothing can come close.
I love the way Pastor Tim Keller applied this text. If there's anybody in this building right now that feels like somebody else has ruined my life, look at Leah. Leah gets her life back. She doesn't have to be bitter. She doesn't have to hate. She doesn't have to deceive back. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. I won't look to anything else to give me what only Jesus Christ can be for me. I will not any, add anything to Jesus Christ as a requirement for being happy. Do that, and you'll get your life back. God's blessing plan to keep promises prevails despite his people's ugliest flaws. Powerful hand of promise, a merciful heart of provision, and finally, third, God's watchful eye of protection. Moving now into chapter 31, Jacob's favor with Laban and sons sours. They think he has stolen all his prosperity, and God comes to him and calls him away from Laban, out of Haran, to return home and reaffirms the, reaffirms the special promise he made. I want you to look at it in chapter 31, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Please note a different Jacob leaves than the one that arrived. He's not all there yet by any means, but he's a more God-centered man. He finally acts like a spiritual leader in the way he leads his wives to follow him. He testifies that God's been with him in 31.6. He acknowledges that God did not permit Laban to harm him in 31.7. And now look at 31.13. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to your kindred. He shares how his wives with his wives, how God appeared to him in another dream, saying, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. They leave, have a few days head start, Laban saddles up. He wants to regain his losses, including the household gods that Rachel has pilfered from the tent. 31, 32. Watch what happens in Genesis 31, 24. 31, 24. God came to Laban the Arabian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Don't mess with my blessings bearer. The tables turn completely to the end of the chapter when Laban can't locate the stolen goods in spite of a tent-by-tent search. 
Why? Because Rachel has them in her saddlebags upon which she sits. Now, I have to imagine that every good Israelite downstream from this would have laughed hysterically when they read Genesis 31, 35. Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. Idols totally subdued beneath a menstruating woman. And Laban has to scramble at the end to put together a non-aggression treaty with Jacob that ensures peaceful separation. Telling you, Jacob's a different man. Look how he testifies to Laban in chapter 31, 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. What an interesting way to describe his dad. The awestruck, inspiring one of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you could have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. It's become such an important theme. I'm going to show you Genesis 48:15 for another testimony of Jacob of even stronger substance. When he blesses Joseph and said, "The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day." Psalm 37, 28 promises, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Came across a very interesting account of a tribe of Native Americans that had a unique practice of training their young braves. You may have heard similar accounts like this. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, he was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the security of his family and tribe. But on this particular night, he's blindfolded and taken miles away. Taking off the blindfold, he's in the middle of the thick woods by himself all night long. Imagine every time a twig snapped, he probably visualized a wild animal ready to pounce. Every time an animal howled, he imagined a wolf leaping out of the darkness. Every time the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it masked. A terrifying night, no doubt, for many. And after what seemed like an eternity, the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. Looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, and an outline of the path. Then to his utter astonishment, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and an arrow. It was his dad. He had been there all night long. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's blessing plan to keep promises prevails despite our ugliest flaws. We can count on his powerful 
hand of providence, his merciful heart of provision, and a watchful eye of protection. Do your flaws disgust you? Take heart. Jesus lived the perfect life you and I can never live. And he died the death you and I should have died for every one of those flaws. There's your hope. There's my hope, the seed of the woman. God is faithful. He keeps his promises to be with us. Even when those flaws rear their ugly heads. Be more mindful daily of the signs of providence in your life. We encourage you this week and uh, be doers, not just hearers. Have yourself attuned. Even pray the moment your eyes open. Ah, providence. Lord, would you help me to see the ways that's working out for me and give thanks. That Laban we identified earlier might you start looking at him or her through a different set of lenses? How's God using that person or persons to discipline you to godliness? Maybe most importantly, get your life back today. Who's robbing your joy? Who are you giving that power to? Nobody can do that. If your supreme soul's delight is in Jesus, I'm not saying you can't get wounded and you can't feel lost, but nobody should have that kind of power over your life. Get your life back. Focus on him and his pleasures forevermore that are at his right hand. And finally, remember, you can't see him, but he sees you. He's the one the psalmist calls your son and your shield in Psalm 8411. You might be mindful of the hymn writer who wrote, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. He's watching you. He's watching us, his church. And he keeps his promises in spite of our flaws. Father, thank you that you are our Father and that this is true of you. We are repulsed by our flaws. You tell us that it is with a contrite of heart that you dwell. Help us to see Jesus anew and afresh in the hope of his gospel. And the confidence that even over the long arc of 20 years in exile, 
you're shaping and molding and changing us. We want to like that today, Lord, more fully and ever with Jesus being the center. Granted, it is so. In his name we pray. Amen.